Calvary Chapel, Mason City. Peter continues on with this theme of suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let us who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Amen. Since we trust in God as the faithful creator of all things, we can confidently entrust ourselves to his care, finding true rest and assurance even in the midst of life's most challenging trials. The outline's simple. Look at the text there. Just three points. The attitude to take towards trials, truths to remember during trials, and number three, action to take when a trial hits. I think you'll find this really practical. The attitude to take towards trials. Look at verse 12. Beloved, don't, do not think it's strange uh, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Now, I just want to stop and, and think about that word just for a second, the word beloved. Now, Peter has addressed through this letter... People as pilgrims, elect, those who are kept by the power of God, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, those who have their souls purified, obeying the truth, those who are born again. He's called us newborn babes who desire the word. Uh, he's called us living stones in the building of God, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own special people, those who have obtained mercy, those who are to submit to government and marriage at work, those who are healed by his stripes, those who are blessed and now he comes to this term, beloved, which means divinely loved by God. And I think you need to take that to heart today. I do as well. That as his people, we are divinely loved by God. That's the most important thing that you could hear about yourself probably today, is that you are divinely loved by God. Don't think it's strange as though some... This fiery trial, which is to try you, is some strange thing. Now, you remember the context. Peter's readers were experiencing incredible persecution for their faith. Nero, the leader of Rome, had burnt down the city of Rome, blamed the Christians for the fire. And maybe when Peter says fiery trial, he's getting at that. He's touching on that. The fact that the Christians were blamed for the fire of Rome caused a dispersion. And those Christians were exiled, sent away from their homes into foreign lands where people didn't appreciate new people and didn't like them. And so they were dealing with great difficulty, simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says, Beloved, 
don't think it's strange. Do not think it's strange that this fiery trial has come upon you. First thing, first attitude you need to take that I need to take towards trials is that they are expected. They are expected. Do you see that there? He says, don't think it's strange that you're dealing with trials. The show that I watch, I, I used to watch it quite a bit. I like it. It's, it's called Hotel Impossible. Maybe you're familiar. And this guy named Anthony Melcury, short little bald guy from Brooklyn. He's like a bulldog. And he goes into hotels that are failing and he fixes them within like a week. And just from the top down, this guy is a hotel expert. To make a very vivid point to an absent-minded hotel owner, he comes one day and he takes this hotel owner, he takes this absent-minded hotel owner out to the parking lot and out in the parking lot, Anthony Melcury, the little bulldog from Brooklyn, he has two curtains set up on some stands. One curtain is the curtain from the guy's hotel and then the other curtain is one that he's recommending they install. And as Anthony takes the blowtorch and begins to torch the one that he's recommending, nothing happens. Fireproof. He goes and he takes that same blowtorch to the curtain that's currently in the hotel, burns it, and the thing goes up faster than you can imagine. Right? And the absent-minded hotel owner says, I thought they were fireproof. Well, that's the very attitude that some Christians have. They think they are fireproof. They get saved, and then they think life is supposed to be easy. Do not think it strange that a fiery trial has come upon you, Peter would say. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul says to Timothy. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. In the book of 1 John. Don't think this is strange, guys, gals. The trials, the trials come upon your life. Fiery trials. That word, fiery, that's the second attitude we need to take is the trials purify us. Look at what it says there. The fiery trial which is to try you. Now this fiery trial is sent to try you. Smelting is the process of heating up ore hot enough to extract the precious metal from it. You guys familiar with it? You've seen, remember I brought a picture a long time ago of a crucible essentially. Um, the ore is heated up to a high temperature and then as that happens, you know, the dross, the filth, the impurities come to the top and then they're scraped off and then what's left is this purified precious metal. Now, what's being said here is you shouldn't think it's strange that things come into your life that are designed to try you to remove the impurities from your life. You know, when things are always going well for somebody, they rarely realize how much they need to change their life. Now, that's what he's saying here. Don't think it's strange that these things come upon you. And you need to understand, first of all, you know, it's the trials are to be expected. Trials are to purify us. Here's the third part of this attitude, that they are a 
cause for rejoicing. Look at this, verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what he's saying here is there is a blessing assured for suffering for Christ's sake. Now, I want to make a note. It's not suffering in general. If you're suffering for your own uh, stupidity, yeah, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Trying to be a little more subdued and toned down here in my older years. When you do things that are less than God-honoring and that brings suffering into your life, there's no blessing in that. Unless, of course, you repent. Now, Philippians 3.10, Paul talking about how his old life was just nothing compared to knowing Christ. Remember this section? He says, that I may know him. This is his heart's desire, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, I want to know Jesus so much. I want to be so aligned with Jesus that I even know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him that well. That's what Peter's talking about here, right here. This suffering for his sake, it causes koinonia. It's the word translated partake. There's a partnership, a fellowship that comes with Jesus when you're suffering for righteous, righteousness sake that, that comes no other way. And so there's a blessing in it. I want you to take heart. If you're going through a rough time because of your faith in Jesus, you have a partnership with him that cannot come any other way. And when he is revealed, when he comes back, which is going to be very soon, you are going to have joy, exceeding joy when you see him. And you realize that you were united with him. That as he was reproached, you were reproached. As he suffered, you suffered. And there will be exceeding joy in the presence of the Lord. Here are a few truths to remember during trials. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, he says, blessed are you. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's hard to believe that there's a blessing in suffering for the sake of our choice to be associated with Jesus. But one thing is certain about suffering is that it, it brings us to the end of ourselves. When I suffer an excruciating trial, after I'm done with all of my wranglings, my schemes, my attempts, when I'm done with all of those things, I throw my hands and say, I don't have anything left, Lord. And he says, well, you're finally realizing that. He says, I thought you read by word where it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why do you think you can still do something? Well, you still think you can do something? I think you need to experience a little bit of trial until you realize you can do nothing. 
I still think I can do something. Well, look out. When I'm emotionally drained, physically worn out, mentally burnt, spiritually dry, I begin to learn a very important lesson that I can do nothing without him. And when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. When I admit that I have nothing, when I admit there's nothing good in me, Lord, there's nothing good in me. I don't have the power to face life like a Christian. I don't have what it takes to behave like a Christian in these situations. There's so much evil all around me. There's so much corruption all around me. This is a fallen place. There's corruption in my own heart. There's perversion in my own life. There's perversion and dirt everywhere and filth in this broken world. Yes, there's some good stuff, but this is a broken, fallen world. And when I come to realize I can't be like Christ, I can't do it. I realize that through trials. Some people make this mistake. They think that being a Christian is being good. You ever tried to be good? How long can you do that for? About a day? Are you like Donald Trump that when he asked, when he repented of his sin, he says, oh, I've never repented of my sin. Think of it, you know. Really? You've never, he said he never had anything to repent about ever in an interview on television. <laughs> and Christians believe that guy's a Christian. Come on. All of us realize that are true Christians that there's nothing good in us and we have no power to do anything that lasts and we have nothing to sustain us. We need Jesus. We need the power of Christ to rest upon us. We have real power available to us, not our own, but his. Now, it does not come as I exert my strength and my genius. It comes upon us when we humble ourselves and when we ask. When trials come, as I say, stay dead to myself, dependent upon him, I can count on his power to be at work in my life. It's not trying harder. It's not coming up with a better plan. It's not looking at your life and saying, you know, if I would have just done this differently, it would have all worked out better. As long as you keep doing that, the power of God's not going to rest upon your life. You're going to continue flailing and struggling around in your own strength, wondering, why isn't this Christianity stuff working for me? It's because you're not relying on Christ. You're relying on yourself. And trials are a blessing because they take us to this point to where we realize, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. So here's a truth to remember. We can draw upon the Spirit's power. Next, we are not to respond to trials with sin. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. What he's getting at here, I believe, is that uh, persecution and the trials that they were dealing with, it's no excuse for sin. He says, we're not to retaliate to the violence done against us as Christians, you know. When we talk about persecution in the American church, a lot of us just don't even, this is not even relative to us. We think, ah, oh, what do you mean persecution? I would, you know, I'm not a doomsday kind of dude at all. Uh, God could revive us at any time. I don't think it's over. God can do what he wants to do. But this country is rapidly getting hostile towards Christianity. Now, if you don't know that, maybe you're not vocal about your Christianity or maybe you're not paying attention to it or maybe you're just in the, in the you know, and I, I don't say this to be mean, but maybe you're just in the North Iowa bubble because this place is a bubble, dude. The rest of the world is hostile towards Christianity and it's coming. It's, it's getting worse. Now, when violence comes against the church, when persecution comes against the church, when it gets to be when you show up in school, you get made fun of so much because you're a Christian. When that stuff really sets in here, you can't retaliate. That's what is being said here. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. When violence comes against the church, Christians don't retaliate by murdering people. You just don't do it. We're not to be violent people. 
Jesus says, turn the other cheek when people reproach you. When people are talking trash about you, what you do is you turn the other cheek. You don't go around and gossip about them behind their back. You don't say mean things back to them. You don't try to get back at them. You don't play worldly games with people. You act like, you behave like a Christian in his power and his strength, right? God help us. If people take our property, we don't, you know, suffer as a thief. We don't go steal from them in return. You say, oh, I don't steal. Well, you know, people do this though today. People do this by cheating on their taxes. They say it's a corrupt government. Who cares? It's a faceless entity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat on my taxes as much as I can. That would be responding to corruption as a thief. That's what that would be. Peter's saying you shouldn't do that. You live in a fallen, broken world. You don't give, you don't fight fire with fire, right? Now, notice he says an evildoer. That kind of captures it all. He says, you know, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer as an evildoer. Somebody that's like engaged in sin and, you know, all these things. You know, that's not the kind of consequences that bring blessings, and notice how he adds this last one, a busybody. Now, this is weird. Why would he put that in that category? You've got murder, theft, and just evil doing, and then busybody. That's a weird word. I mean, I think of like, a, well, I don't even want to say it. I just get a picture in my mind of like some librarian coming around when you're, you know, being, you know, like or something like that. That's the picture I get. If you're a librarian, I'm totally, I don't mean to offend you. I've, I've, thankfully, you're there. I mean, books are good for kids and for all of us. Keep it up. The Greek term, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it's a, well, I will. It's a, it's a compound word, alotrios, meaning belonging to another and, or foreign, and episkopos. Alotrios episkopos. So it means something belonging to another, and then episkopos is overseer. So the, the word itself, busybody, means somebody that has self-appointed themselves to be an overseer over other people's matters. You get the idea of the word? Here's a few other definitions. One definition is an inspector of another. Hmm. Another one is a self-appointed overseer of other people's matters. I think I read that one. Another one is... Uh, this, this author says this, this scholar says, the word involves intrusive behavior, behavior or being overly curious about the affairs of others. So we are not to be self-appointed inspectors and managers of other people's lives. Why is it in this list? Because it's a serious sin. This is what some people think their spiritual gift is. They think that they go around and they can detect and analyze everybody's life and tell people what to do all the time. That is not a spiritual gift. That's a sin. That's a serious sin in the same list as murderer. So if you wonder if you're a busybody, let me ask you, and don't answer this out loud, please, but if you have a whole list in your mind at any given time of the things that you think you can fix in other people's lives, you could be a busybody. And it's a serious sin. So stop that. Now, some suffering is deserved, but if we sin in response to being, uh, you know, in this fallen, broken world, if sin is our response to it, our suffering is not just. And so this is a truth to remember in times of trial, is don't respond with sin. Don't fight fire with fire. Be a Christian. Verse 16, here's the next truth we need to remember in trials. Uh, we need not to be ashamed of suffering for Christ, okay? It says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. At the time that Peter was writing, biblical times, the word Christian was a derogatory term. It, I mean, you think of it's kind of a, you know, okay name today. I, I'm a Christian. But in that day, it was a label to, 
you know, put a label and a stamp on these people that were these peculiar, bad, weird cannibals that had orgies together and all this stuff. I mean, every, you could think of a whole bunch of bad stuff. That's what was said about Christians. It wasn't founded in truth, but that's how they were labeled. And so the term Christian was, uh, you know, it was a derogatory term. You know, they, they thought Christians were cannibals because they partake in the Lord's Supper and they had love feasts together. And so the way the pagans celebrated was with like debaucherous sex stuff and all this other stuff. So they, they assume all the Christians are doing, you know. So it's a, it's a derogatory label. Now today, it's starting to become a derogatory label again. Oh, you're a Christian? You're one of those that doesn't affirm same-sex marriage and all that stuff like that? And, and you, you think, you know, God only made two genders like man you're antiquated dude you're you're that's hate speech bro because i know that, you know there's a spectrum of gender there's like you know 80 different points on the gender spectrum really you know that goes against every single thing that science has to say sound science so if you're a christian and you affirm these things and you stand in these things and you suffer because of it peter would tell you don't be ashamed about that you know as i was thinking through this i thought i'd rather be I'd rather be criticized for following a man that taught selfless love, servanthood, turning the other cheek, decency, respect for marriage and family. He taught that people shouldn't lie and cheat and cover other people's possessions, shouldn't commit adultery. I'd rather suffer criticism for one that came and saved and died for people, gave his life to save people that weren't deserving. I'd rather suffer criticism for him than be loved by the people in this world. Here's the truth to remember. We can draw upon the Spirit's power and we are not to respond with sin to trials and we should not be ashamed of suffering for Jesus Christ. Here's the next thing. We are disciplined by God at the right times. Look at this, verse 17. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, now Peter adds this new element to suffering. See what he's teaching about suffering. First of all, he said that, you know, persecution and suffering, uh, these are trials that refine and prove our faith. He says that in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Trials refine us. It said that also in this passage with the, the term fiery trial. You know, and now he adds this, um, that God allows persecutions, sufferings, and trials as disciplinary judgment to purify the lives of those in the house of God. You know who the house of God is, right? It's Christians. And so what it says is the time has come. Now the Greek reveals that it was happening, right? The time has come. It's happening now. It's, it's happening now. So that's what Peter's telling his readers. He's saying the trials that you're experiencing, this is happening now. He's like, look, the time has come. It's happening now for judgment that is discipline to begin at the house of God. In other words, Peter's saying, hey, God's disciplining us. Right? And if it begins with us first, us, the church. See, God will discipline us at the right times. This is something, again, that doesn't necessarily make sense 
to a lot of Christians. They, they just don't understand. They think that when they become a Christian, it's like they've got a lucky rabbit's foot. And, you know, it's like, well, if God's pleased with me, everything's going smoothly. And he always, you know, wants to just bless me and all this. Oh, I haven't rubbed my rabbit's foot today. So I need to, maybe I should pray or maybe I should put some money in the box or maybe I should go to church because I can bribe God essentially to bless me. It's not how it works. God's a father. He's a person. He's not a soda machine that you put the right change in and out pops the can of blessing. He's a father that's interested in your life. And I will tell you, look, every good father, every good parent deliberately brings mis, you know, uncomfortable situations in their kid's life. Every good parent intentionally brings discomfort to their children on purpose to help them to learn to live independent of them. Now, God doesn't want us to live independent of us, but he gives us these trials to mature us. If you never discipline your kids and they never have any trials in life, well, some of you probably have never done that and they're probably 45 still living with you. Could be. God knows better than to fail to discipline his kids. He doesn't want to end up um, with a bunch of... Uh, immature children. Why don't you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 if you would, please. God's discipline is a positive thing for Christians. And he says, this is our time for it. So Hebrews 12. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the love, uh, Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If God loves you, he punishes you. He disciplines you to bring discipline, you know, to bring maturity in your life. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Unfortunately, a lot today. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if, you know, if God isn't disciplining you in your life, if you're getting away with a bunch of sin in your life, if, God's not, if you're not actively seeing God doing things in your life to mature you, to get you out of your spiritual ruts, if he's not doing that in your life, if he's not sending trials into your life, you're, you might not be his son. You might not be his daughter. That's what he says there. You might be illegitimate, not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Chastening separates you from the filth and the corruption of this world and makes you more holy, more set apart. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Oh yes, that's true. That's why I don't understand that song, Refiner's Fire. Refiner's Fire. Oh yeah. <laughs> really? Refiner's fire. Oh, God, please let me out of this. Lord, help me. I'm done with myself. That's my version of it. It's a remix. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. How are you going to become righteous? How are you going to bear righteous fruit in your life? How are you going to become holy? Through God, your loving, wise Father, disciplining you, punishing you, chastening you. That's what it says right there. Truth to remember, we can draw upon the Spirit's power. We're not to respond to trials with sin. We don't need to be ashamed of our suffering. We are disciplined by God at the right times. Verse 18, we are not judged like the ungodly. Look at what it says. And if it begins with us first, it's also in verse 18, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Peter quotes that proverb from the Septuagint version. And what he's getting at here, I'm just going to summarize this quickly for us. In other words, God's children are experiencing this refining. If we're going through these hard times and these trials now, if another version says rather than if righteous one is scarcely saved, it says if uh, the righteous one, um, that's not, I, need the, I need the next verse up there, Tyler. Verse 18, if it's around, maybe it's not around. Okay, so there's a different, you were looking in your Bible where it says that the righteous one is scarcely saved. Uh, the NASB translates it and says, if uh, with difficulty the righteous one is saved. The idea is that your salvation, your process, your sanctification, your holiness is difficult. It's difficult to be a Christian. Now, it's not difficult to be a Christian in the sense like you don't have to do something great to earn salvation. You could never earn salvation. It's a gift. You could never be holy. You could never be perfect. Salvation is a gift of God. But at that moment, when he becomes your father, because he wasn't your father before you said yes to Jesus. You're his enemy. But when you become his child by saying yes to him, the correction begins. You've been adopted into a new house and there's some rules in the house and uh, you need to be taught what those are. I need to be taught what they are. And so the correction begins. That's what he means. When a righteous person, it's, it's difficult. Now, this brings up a point. If your walk with Jesus isn't difficult, are you sure you have a walk with Jesus? Are you sure you're following him? Because Jesus says, narrow is the path that leads to life. And he says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. That wide path where there's all these people, you know, forgive me for being too hardcore. For, there's all these people in, in 2023 using the name of Christ to, to describe themselves. I'm a Christian, but they're on that wide path. They haven't responded to Jesus called the discipleship that says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me daily. That's the call to be a Christian. Now, there are people that claim the name Christ maybe even have Christian decor in their homes, but haven't actually been come to the point where I'm done with me and I'm living for Jesus. I'm going to be obedient to him, right? Those people are on the wide path. They're just flailing around. People on the narrow path, it's a hard path. Why? Because God's dealing with all this sin in our lives. We're, if you're exactly like Jesus Christ today, well, congrats, the process is over. If you think you're like Jesus Christ today, you're delusional. I mean, this guy, Todd White, you ever heard this false teacher? This from out of Bethel. This guy's on TV talking about how he became a Christian. And he never sinned ever again. Are you kidding me? He's like a 700, I can't remember how many hundred thousand dollars his mansion is for peddling his word of faith, blasphemy. 
I've never sinned again. I've reached sinless perfectionism. There are people throughout Christianity that have, have propounded, you know, purported this doctrine of, you know, called pietism, that somehow you could become sinless. There are actually denominations that teach that. Uh, you know, the righteous, one, the righteous one is scarcely saved. It's difficult, you know, it's a difficult walk. But look what he says, you know, or back to your Bible. Verse 18, he says, uh, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? If salvation's a tough road for Christians, it doesn't even compare to the judgment that people outside of Christ are going to face. Now that's comforting to you, but it should be motivating to our evangelism and to our prayer for the people that are not saved that we know in our lives because the judgment they're going to face is brutal according to what the Bible says. Now, truths to remember there in that section. Draw upon the Spirit's power in trials. We're not to respond with sin. We don't need to be ashamed. We're disciplined by God at the right time. And we're not judged with the ungodly. Here comes our last point. <clears throat> Here's the action that we're to take when we're hit with trials. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, the word therefore concludes this section on suffering that we've been dealing with for the last few weeks. And he concludes with an exhortation and an assurance to those suffering according to the will of God. Notice that there. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, what should we do? Well, first of all, the thing I wanted to draw out of that part of the verse, here's the action to take when you're suffering. First of all, commit, we need to commit ourselves to suffering what is needed. As a Christian, it's very helpful if I just settle this in my heart right now if I haven't, and just realize there is needed suffering that's going to come into my life. So that's an action that we need to take because when a trial comes, if you've already settled this and you say, hey, you know, I, I expected this. So I, I'm committed. Lord, I'm going to go through the refining process. You know, can you, can you say that today to him in your heart? Can you say, you know, Lord, I know you bring tests into my life and I know you bring suffering, but I'm going to commit to you right now that I'm going to suffer with your help, with your power. I'm going to suffer through these things like a Christian. I want to honor you. I want to glorify you through my short time on this earth. It's good to commit to that. It's good to know that suffering is a reason and a goal and an end. It's a purifying process that brings us closer to God. Look at the second part there. This is, this is something I want you to notice also in verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. So again, it's kind of reiterating that when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering, we're still to be committed to doing good. Peter says the persecution is not an excuse. It's not a, it's not a way to opt out of being Christ-like. Next thing, commit ourselves to God, a faithful creator. Look at that there. Uh, this is the last you know, action we're to take. I, I would say if you take something home with you today, I don't know if you're a note taker. I surely hope you are because I doubt that you've remembered all this stuff. I mean, but if you take something home with you today, this would be it. He says, therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to the will of God, commit their souls to him uh, in doing good. Um, he's a faithful creator. Is there a verse for that one up there? Okay. You notice where it says, you can back up one slide maybe just for a second. So where it says commit their souls. 
Now, I brought a picture to illustrate what that word commit means. And uh, Tyler's got it back there. This is a safe, well, does anybody know what that is? Safe deposit box, right? Some of you are like, I've never had anything to put in a safety deposit box, so I have no idea what that is. That's me, you know? But I Googled it, and, uh, you know, that's, it's a safety deposit box. That's what this word commit has to do with. It's this word where you would take and you would, you know, make a deposit into a safe place, something for safekeeping. And that's what Peter is telling us to do with our souls. He's saying, take your whole life and make a deposit. Deposit it into the Lord. Leave it in a safe place. He's, he's the safety deposit box. You know, you, de you deposit your life into him. He says he's a faithful creator. This is what we do with our whole life, with our souls. We make the choice of the will. Now, listen, listen to this. You make the choice in your will. You say, I'm going through suffering. I don't know what to do. I'm responding. I'm reacting like this. I'm sinning over here. I can't figure it out. I'm cursing God one minute. I'm praying, God, get me out of this the next minute. I'm, I'm having a hard time. What you do is you stop and you make a choice of the will. You know what your will is? I mean, it's this thing you have control over inside of your, in your mind, inside of you. You have control over this choice that you can make. And you make this choice. You say, Lord, I'm going to just deposit my life into your care. I'm just going to trust. Why? Because there's two things it says there. It says that he's faithful and that he's a creator. I can trust God because he's been faithful. Hasn't he? I mean, he created this universe and he's been superintending it. He's been keeping it going. He's been caring for people. He's been saving people. You heard a testimony this morning. He's been doing that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He's been doing that. And he's made good on every promise he's ever made. He's a faithful creator. That's the other thing too, is he's a creator. But what that means is he created you. Now, some of you parents, you may have used this line. I heard this one. Hopefully you haven't used this. But I used to hear this one. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you don't threaten your kids like that, but... I was threatened like that a lot. <laughs> Daily. Because I was a really, 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 really bad kid. And so, praise God. But God really could say that, though, right? Because he created you. He made you. He owns you. He can do what he wants with your life. Well, why are you letting this happen to me, God? Well, because I own you. I made you. You know, you belong to me. My son's blood set you free from sin and death and guaranteed your eternity. I think I own you. That's what he could say to us. He could say to us, he's such a gentleman that he doesn't do it like that, does he? He gives you all the choice to prove your genius over and over again. And you get into a trial and you come to the end of yourself and you cry out, be faithful to me. I have always been faithful. I'm the one that made you. I know what's best for you. Thou art the potter and we are the clay. Mold me and shape me however you see fit. I can commit my soul to him and continue to behave like a Christian in the power of his spirit because I know God is my faithful creator. What's it look like? Obedience. Prayer. 
spending time in the Word. That's what it looks like. I'm committing my soul. I'm saying, you know what? I'm committed to you. You're the one that makes the rules. Let me just follow your rules. I'm committed to you. Turn over to Psalm 31, please. And with a couple of passages of Scripture. We don't have slides for these, so please just use your Bible. Psalm 31. You know, David knew something about committing his life into the hands of the Lord over and over and over and over and over again. I marvel about David's life. Every time I read First and Second Samuel, and I read about David, and I read about this guy that God calls a man after his own heart. He knows a lot about being betrayed, about suffering at the hands of the ungodly. He knows about fear, fearing for his life. He knows about sickness. He knows about sin. He knows about having wives that try to squelch his worship and condemn him for, you know. Uh, he knows about, he's got the whole gamut. He's been through it all. And so he knows about committing his heart to the Lord. And in Psalm 31, he says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief. And my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I'm a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel for I hear the slander of many fears on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. In the presence of the sons of men, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said, in my haste, I'm cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Oh, love the Lord, all of you, his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and faithfully repays the proud person. 
be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Amen. Turn over to Luke. And then we're going to be done after this. Luke 23, please. Notice what he said there in verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit, O Lord. Luke chapter 23. After being betrayed by his friend, abandoned by his disciples, rejected by those he came to save, falsely accused, put on trial, mock trial, corrupt government, just because they were jealous of him, because they loved money rather than righteousness. They spat upon him, they beat him, they put a bag over his head, punched him in his face repeatedly till you couldn't even recognize that he was a human. His back scourged, organs hanging out likely, crown of thorns to mock his name. Led away to the cross. Verse 32 of Luke 23. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divided his garments. They threw dice. Who gets to keep his clothes? And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is his offense. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation. And when we... And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, as surely I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So what Peter's saying when he's saying, commit your soul. Now Jesus is the perfect example of this. He hung on the cross. People brutally murdered him, blasphemed him, and he said, forgive him. <coughs> forgive those people. Are you sure, Jesus, they drove spikes through your ankles, through your wrists? Are you sure you're in the worst pain that you could ever imagine physically? Your life is being robbed from you. Are you sure? Forgive them. 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's the perfect example of this, how to respond to a trial, isn't he? Now, he, he does perfectly. We fail in this miserably. So we need his power. Why don't we turn to him and ask him for that? Father in heaven.